in a way, entrepreneurs are just people who are unemployable. I just don't know how to hold down a job. So I found a company and then it succeeds or it fails and then I start another company. Well, I think global workforces are common nowadays. And if you're doing global freight, then everything you do is by its nature global. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode of Founder Real Talk, I'm joined by my colleague and now many-time co-host, Oren Younger. Hey, Oren. Hey, Glenn. We're uh, thrilled to welcome V Schreiber to the show. V is the founder and CEO of Freitas, which is the platform for international air and ocean B2B freight shipping. Before founding Freitas in 2012, Zvi had an extensive background as founder and CEO of multiple companies, including Unicorn Solutions, which was acquired by IBM in 2006. And Zvi holds Master's of Science in Theoretical Physics, a PhD in Computer Science. He wrote a novel about physics called Fizz that was published in 2011. So he is a very smart guy. We're going to ask him a little bit about some of those things today. And we're going to also talk about how Freitas' freight as a service aims to completely optimize and modernize the world of international freight shipping. Zvi, thanks so much for joining us today, and welcome to Founder Real Talk. Great to be on. Great. So before Freitas, you had lots of experience as a founder and CEO with, with companies like Tradium and Ghost. Be curious to understand kind of how you think your experience as a founder uh, has informed your, you know, your current role today at Freitas and how you've, uh, you've grown your business here. Yeah. You know, like, like somebody said, I mean, um, in a way, entrepreneurs are just people who are unemployable. So, uh, you know, for me, it's just, I just don't know how to hold down a job. So, so I found a company and then it succeeds or it fails. And then I start another company, you know, and I just keep doing the same thing. I think maybe, you know, we'll talk about later maybe that Freitas is a relatively uh, complex market and a complex company. So perhaps over time, I got the confidence to take on bigger problems in a way. But other than that, I just, you know, just do what I do. So in your prior companies, you know, one was acquired by IBM and another by GE. You had one that ended in a fire sale. How'd you ha- you know, how do you handle those kind of very different experiences and, and what kind of mindset uh, shifts does that help bring to the Freitas story? Look, I think, you know, any entrepreneur who has multiple um, companies is hopefully going to have a mixture of successes and failures. That's part of the game. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of luck in everything in life and in businesses as well. And for me, like I said, it's just what I, what I enjoy doing. And I, I think, you know, when I've had companies who failed or, or fire, you know, ended in a file sale in a, in a disappointing result and other companies which have ended well, in both cases, I've done the same thing and just founded another company. And so I haven't really treated it differently. Tried. It's it's more fun to succeed. I can confirm that. <laughs> we think so too as investors. Having having been on both sides of that coin, we could say yeah, we like we like it when they succeed better. But uh, it is preferable if you can choose. So I do try to succeed. But it's kind of a bug when when you know when when a company ends up uh, badly. I don't uh, sort of mope about it for too long, and the company ends up well. And unfortunately, the buzz doesn't last for long either. <laughs> Just have to start another company, you know. So why freight? And with your technical training, impressive startup experience, you could have tackled any domain. What was it that made you go after traditional industry 
and decide that this is a problem worth solving. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that's why, right? Be- because I felt that I was ready to take on a challenge of that size, where, where which most entrepreneurs wouldn't wouldn't take on. So if I was going to build a, a social network or a, or a, even a CRM SaaS or I don't know what, I'd be competing with <laughs> hundreds of other entrepreneurs. Freight is is a sort of complex traditional industry. There's a lot of stuff to build, and uh, I also I'd seen firsthand. You know, I, I, in 2010 2011, I'd managed this company Litech, which got acquired by uh, GE. And during that time, I, I experienced the problem firsthand. I saw just how old fashioned and opaque international shipping is. So on the one hand, I'd seen the problem, and on, on the other hand, it, it seemed like the kind of problem that not many entrepreneurs would take on. And and that's proven itself in the sense we've got plenty of challenges and it's taking time and effort and we're succeeding, but it's taking, you know, years and a lot of persistence, a lot of complexity, a lot of capital. But but one problem we barely have is competition. You know, that that's really there's really very, very few um, other entrepreneurs tackling freight. And even if you looked at domestic sort of trucking freight, then there are more there, there is more competition. There are more marketplaces for domestic trucking, which is a slightly easier problem. For international air and ocean, there's really very little in terms of competition. So maybe you could use this opportunity to to tell us a little bit more about the company. You've compared Freitas to Expedia and Booking.com. Curious, like when it sounds like you had some prior experience in this space, but what was the moment where you realized, you know, there was an opportunity here and that this was this was a viable model in in um, international freight. Yeah, so so I had some experience with this company, Litech. We were producing power supplies, electronic power supplies for LED lights, produced them like a lot of electronics in, in South China. And then we had customers mostly in the US and in Europe. So we were shipping, you know, every day by ocean and by air. You know, people from outside the industry can find this hard to believe. You, you must assume that if you're, you know, people outside the industry think that if you're going to ship a container, it's probably a very automated, it's probably like booking a flight. You know, you go to a website, you compare prices, you book and, and you, you pay what you book. Uh, but it, it's nothing like that. I mean, um, still today, we've started to change it and some others have started to change it. But but even today, if you call up a freight forwarder for a simple spot quote to ship a container from, from the US to, to uh, or let's say from China to the US, you can wait two to three days for a price quote. We've wow. had it, we do some surveys actually. We've had it uh, as much as 30 days from, from a very famous logistics company who, who I won't name right now because now they're a, cu- I used to name them, but now they're a customer of us. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a very famous logistics company, 30 days for a simple spot quote. And so it's a very, very um, outdated industry. And it was very obvious as a customer that this is, uh, that this is seriously broken. And then, Eventually, you know, 40 days later, your container arrives and then you, you get an invoice that never matches the quote that you had anyway. So mm. you, don't, you don't even know why you bothered getting a quote, you know. I mean, literally, I felt like I was probably the first guy to ship a container from China to the U.S. Now, <laughs> if you take a look at the shelves in the, in the U.S., you know, and they go into Walmart and look at the shelf, you'll see that I wasn't, in fact, the first guy to ship a container from China to the U.S. This is done many tens of thousands of times a day. Uh, and yet it, it really felt like I was the first guy, you know, like you call this big freight forward, a multi-billion dollar company, and you, you want to ship it, a container from China to the US. And they make they make you feel that, that you're like, oh, well, we'll get back to you with a price quote in a couple of days. It's really just unbelievable. Uh, the other thing maybe to mention is, you know, you mentioned the analogy of Freitas to 
Expedia or Booking.com. But the interesting thing which we discovered early on in terms of the complexity is that when when Expedia launched and, and Orbitz and, and the others, you know, in, in the end of the 90s, there was a lot of infrastructure behind that. Like uh, there was these companies, Sabre and Amadeus, which some of your listeners may be familiar with, but big companies which had been around. Sabre, believe it or not, started in the 1960s. So um, not not a lot of people know this, but if you wanted to book, if a, a sophisticated travel agent wanted to book a passenger onto a seat on American Airlines in 1963, you could do that electronically. Mm. Through Sabre. Through Sabre. Yeah. yeah and amazing. They, they Amadeus joined them. So there was decades of history. By the way, if you want to book cargo onto Amer- an American Airlines flight, you still can't do it electronically. That's coming hopefully in the coming months. Uh, so some airlines have started that and we're partnering with a lot of airlines. But still, most airlines, most cargo is booked onto airlines by phone and email still. You know, wow. 50, 57 years later, right? So <laughs> this industry is a little bit behind. So, but, but what I was going to say is that we weren't just building the equivalent of a sort of an Expedia or a booking, but we had to build the equivalent of the Sabre and the Amadeus as well. So we acquired and then built up a company called Web Cargo, which is our subsidiary uh, based mm. on Barcelona. Uh, a couple of uh, fantastic entrepreneurs have been building that, that up for some years. They, they joined forces with us. And and now, so we have really the equivalent of the sort of the the you know parallel to Sabre and Amadeus, and also the parallel to the Expedia or, or the Booking dot com uh, in one company. So you referenced earlier that this maybe you gained confidence in some of your earlier startups to take on a tackle a, a bigger and bigger problem. You know, this is it. it this is. 57 years later, right? <laughs> this problem hasn't been solved in the same way that like moving people has been solved. You know, part of that has got to be because it's it's complex. And it seems like there's multiple constituents that you're serving. You've got you've got shippers, you've got freight forwarders, you've got the carriers. So how did you even like think how do how do you start in a business like this? The problem's so vast. Like we always tell our startups to focus on like their ideal customer profile and get to a minimal, minimally viable product and and kind of keep iterating. Could you do that here? Or was it like, did you have to kind of bite off a little bit more than a typical startup first before you start chewing? That's a great question. We actually did do that in a way. I remember my first meeting in 2012, we just got started and we knew that we had to automate the whole price quoting. And so I had a meeting next to Heathrow Airport in, in London with a a freight forwarder from Siva Logistics, and um, he had a, a vision that he wanted to automate his price quote. So he wanted to do, we found a forwarder who actually at least wanted to do you know, what we're doing. And at that point, we weren't trying to connect to the carriers or whatever, just trying to, and basically what we said is, you know, he sort of pulled out an, an iPad and said, I, I'd, like, I'd love it if my you know, my sales team could do a price quote instantly on this iPad. You know, is that is that even possible? So I said, I've, I've got no idea, but show us, let me sit with your team. It was, you know, me doing it myself at that point, and then, then you know, then I delegated it. But let me sit with your team, and let's see how they do a price quote uh, today. And so uh, so I sat with the team, and, and they, you know, they, they needed to do a door-to-door air from, you know, from China to the UK. So they sent an email to China to say, you know, how much is the trucking on the China side? And then they pulled out an Excel sheet they had from the airline, and then they had an Excel sheet from the local trucking. So I said, well, can you get me all those Excel sheets, including the Excel sheet that your colleague, in, you know, in the China office has? And so he, he did. He collected those Excel sheets, and we, we created initially a, a tool which – could do the, you know, add up the, do what they were doing, just automating what they were doing manually. And then in time, we added more intelligence to make the the routing fully automatic. So we didn't check just, you know, um, 
just Heathrow Airport, we checked Gatwick and Manchester as well. And so we made it more dynamic and more optimized. But yes, we did start with a, with an MVP, um, which was automating a very specific problem. But we knew uh, the difference is, so we did start with an MVP, but the, it wasn't an MVP of what we wanted to be. We eventually wanted to be a platform, a marketplace for international freight. Mm. At that time, none of the carriers had APIs. We couldn't do that. So it was sort of a, a an initial step where we built this SaaS and, and, and sort of automated some of the logic, but knowing full well that when we grew up, we wanted to be a, a marketplace, and that would take many years. Uh, but we were we were engaging with customers all the way along that journey. Cool. Well, Fredos now is much more advanced than those days. You have some really major customers like Alibaba, FedEx, FedEx Logistics. Those are some really awesome examples. But you also have some surprising smaller customers. Could you talk a little bit about you know how Fredos appeals to both large and small organizations, and and also how do you how do you support those really different types of organizations and market them? Yeah, we have uh, actually at all tiers, you mentioned before correctly that we engage with importers and exporters, we engage with freight forwarders, we engage with carriers. Uh, and well, with the exception, carriers are normally big companies, airlines and ocean liners are all big companies. But in the other two tiers, we have quite a variety. So we work with importers and exporters from very small uh, people who are, it could be a one, one man person or, or woman, you know, working out of their basements. Uh, doing a very uh, niche sort of e-commerce, maybe selling on a website or on Amazon sellers. Uh, So we have some very tiny importers, uh, one-person shops. We're all going all the way up to companies like Cisco Foods and Inditex uh, Zara, which are, you know, multi-billion dollar enterprises. Uh, We work with freight forwarders um, all the way from some very small freight forwarders, you know, maybe four or five people, uh, all the way up to big freight forwarders like uh, Hellman and FedEx Logistics, uh, who, who operate in tens of countries with thousands and thousands of employees, maybe tens of thousands of employees. So yeah, we have a quite a quite a variety, and and then we have the three types of uh, you know customers, and then you know small and enterprise. So yeah, we we do in fact we try very hard to keep everyone on the same technology platform. So sometimes we customize the user interface, but the core of the technology, wherever possible, we, we try to keep common. In terms of sales, we do have separate teams. We have teams talking to small importers. We have teams talking to enterprise importers. We have teams talking to small forwarders, teams talking to big uh, forwarders. We have a team talking to carriers, uh, particularly airlines. So we do end up with uh, quite a few different teams. We, we haven't found any way around that. Cool. Um, well, you know, freight trade is, isn't a topic we see come very often. You mentioned there's not a lot of competition. Uh, and maybe it's because the industry, as you said, is so archaic and it's not going to be a quick fix even today. But you also managed to do really well. You raised thir- uh, you raised $94 million to date. But could you take us back to the early days and tell our listeners how it was, you know, some of the biggest challenges of raising capital for this uh, type of uh, organization? Yeah. So if I may, if I may, two things on that, maybe just first as a tangent, you said that you don't see a lot of international freight, but if I could just pick you up on that for a second. So I think that's right. But I think you are seeing in the Valley and, and elsewhere, you are seeing more and more B2B marketplaces. That is something we've, we've spoken about that, right? Going, you know, for 20 mm-hmm. years, but that's, that's happening a lot more. There are a lot of 
B2B marketplaces. And, and B2B is mostly, you know, cross-border and, and mostly involves shipping. So I think um, you will hear uh, more and more startups that you talk to will be doing B2B and supply chain and will need shipping. And that's part of our strategy, not just to sell on our own website, but to provide an API which which can enable uh, the growing sector of B2B marketplaces. Uh, so that's definitely part of our strategy. In terms of funding, um, it sort of varied. I, I have to say, when we did a Series A, luckily this wasn't my first company, and and from a, you know, really, I I did uh, lean on some good relationships I had with VCs in Tel Aviv, and I have to admit that if I didn't, if I was a first time entrepreneur, I don't know if I could have done a Series A, uh, but that was then, and and that's changed. So over the last uh, eight years, more and more VCs have absolutely discovered logistics. And there's been more and more investment in logistics. So in the Valley, you've got uh, Flexport, which has raised over a billion dollars. So nowadays, uh, it's gotten easier as more and more VCs have understood that here's a, here's a big opportunity, which, which is worth going after. C- curious, maybe you could touch a little bit on the, the global pandemic and how that's impacted your business and really global trade more generally, um, since you guys have such an interesting view into that. Hmm. Yeah, it's sort of gone in a couple of phases. I mean, if you go back to when COVID started to, to spread, you know, worldwide, sort of March, April, it was it was a very scary time. Uh, what happened is China shut down. So China shut down for Chinese New Year as usual in February and didn't reopen for, for about a month, as far as I remember. So if I remember the timeline correctly, in March, there was just no shipments coming out of China at all. And China is more than still just over half of the shipments in our marketplace are coming out of China, as, as you might guess. So there was no, you know, China was shut down. Flights were virtually shut down. There were almost no flights sort of in April. And we were just getting started with our connections with airlines and suddenly, you know, nothing. So that was a very scary time. Yeah. Having said that, you know, flights got back in the air, not as much as, as before, but, but maybe uh, about 50% are back in the air. And cargo has become a big part of, you know, a lot of flights are actually making their money from cargo right now. Mm. So cargo rates are high, cargo holds are full. And and shopping has come back. You know, people have ended in the end. Americans, for example, are buying more goods, you know, less services, but but more goods than last year uh, in 2020. You know, uh, more than in 2019. So it's actually and a lot more buying online. A lot of a lot of the companies using Freitas are e-commerce. So I think it's actually ended up being a tailwind for us. Uh, just because there's more adoption of uh, e-commerce, more adoption of digital tools, people working from home and, and wanting digital tools. I think in the end, it's actually, like in other some other industries, it's actually been an accelerant for digitization of freight. I'm curious, you guys have such an interesting vantage point here. Do you think, you know, when when all said and done, and we, we put the pandemic in the rear view mirror and have some chance to like, you know, let some time pass so uh, we have some perspective on it, Will the world have changed, you know, for for good in certain ways, or do you think we go back to pre-pandemic habits and behaviors? So, you know, and that'll have an impact on your business. So what I mean is like maybe you could comment on this trend you mentioned where in the US, you know, you're seeing the consumer uh, lean more heavily on goods than services. I also think it's probably true, and you're probably seeing it, that global, you know, just that the the shipment the the need like the demand for goods uh, is increasing just traffic of global cargo. Maybe you could comment on whether or not you think those are uh, enduring trends, or if if those are things that you know will will kind of subside as the as we get get back to normal. 
Yeah, that's that's tough, right? I mean, uh, you also just said that you shouldn't make predictions, especially about the future. So, <laughs> this is founder real talk. We ask the tough questions. Yeah, well, I can say what I like, right? But <laughs> I just tried to say something which actually has some intelligence uh, behind it. No, I I don't know. I think e-commerce has been ad- advanced by some years. So so people who are holdouts and still buying, you know, offline, I've got used to buying online. So I don't think that's all going back to the to the stores. I don't think anyone some of it will go back, but but everyone's gotten used to buying online. So I think that's a, an, an enduring trend. I assume, but this is I do, I've got no special vantage point on this, but I assume that business travel is not fully going back. I can certainly tell you tell you that many customers of mine who never did a, a video call before, you know, have now learned to use Zoom. And some of them will still, after COVID, some of them will still expect us to, to turn up just to show how serious we are. But others will say, What's the, you know, you don't need to travel. We've got used to video calls. In terms of shopping, I assume that uh, my own guess is that people will go back pretty much to old shopping habits with, uh, with a little bit more bought online and a little bit less, you know, in, in shops. That's just my guess. Okay. Well, on the theme of of global, you've got 200 employees or so now. Um, So, you know, definitely scaling as a business with seven offices around the world. That's pretty substantial for a startup to be managing that many locations. And one in particular we thought was interesting is you have an office in Ramallah, both Jerusalem and Ramallah. I don't think we've, I don't think we've spoken to this is, this is, we're 50 episodes plus in now. And I don't, I think you're the first who has a, who has an office in Ramallah. So we thought we'd ask you a little bit about, you know, what it's like to manage uh, such a global workforce first. And then, you know, maybe if you could comment a little bit on, on the Ramallah office and what that's like. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, well, I, I think global work- workforces are, are common nowadays. And if you're doing global freight, then everything you do is by its nature yep. global. So there was never any question that we'd have to have some kind of uh, footprint around the world. And obviously, it's it's so much easier with all the tools nowadays. And and um, even before COVID, most of my meetings were on Zoom. And you know, now since COVID, all my meetings are on Zoom and, and the like. So that that's been fun having uh, offices around the world and uh, having an office in Ramallah in Palestine specifically has been a a pleasure. Already some years ago, um, I noticed that you know there was a shortage of talent. There's, there is a shortage of engineering talent. It's very hard to, in Israel. It's become quite hard to to hire and certainly expensive. And and you've got the big. You're competing not just with uh, the whole startup ecosystem, which is pretty live, but you've got Microsoft and Amazon and Intel and Facebook and you know eBay. Everyone's got development centers in Israel. So so we still have some developers in Israel, which is which is great. But uh, but we obviously needed a, a better talent pool. And other Israeli companies were going to uh, Ukraine and India and that kind of thing, which, which is fine. But but I thought, well, how about going, you know, right to our neighbors in Palestine? And it turns out there is a talent pool, a growing talent pool, um, you know, which is uh, undertapped in Ramallah. Ramallah is like uh, 20 miles from my home, you know, although nobody thinks of going there because it is a very different culture and that there are tensions, as you know, from the news, there are political tensions, but I don't care about politics. You know, the, here's some... Here's some uh, Nice people around the corner who um, who, who are talented, and, and so it's been a it's been a great pleasure to be. We've got about ninety people, I think, in uh, in Ramallah, and I think we're one of the one of the biggest, if not you know, one of the biggest high tech employers in Palestine. And um, it's been a great pleasure to to you know build that bridge and and have some talents in the same time zone nearby, and to build teams. Uh, you know, we have a lot of. Sometimes it's separate teams, but sometimes it's common teams. Sometimes 
we've had cases where there's a Palestinian manager for an Israeli team, so it's really a you know fully integrated part of the team, and it's been a, it's been a pleasure. Do you expect you'll see, given that other startups in Israel have the same challenges you guys do with respect to availability of of strong talent, do you expect others to to tap into the talent pool in Ramallah as well? I certainly expected that at the beginning. It's happened less than I hoped because I, you know, I'd like to see the the high tech uh, expanding in Ramallah, and it has to some extent. It has to some extent, but not as much as I hoped. But there are other Israeli companies who either, you know, we sort of have this. This is a fully fully integral part of our team. There have been some other Israeli companies doing doing that by outsourcing, which is also good. It also creates jobs. I don't think it's a, it's as good as having your own team, but it's it's mm-hmm. also good. So there's been some of that, and yeah, I'd lo- I'd love to see more. It's awesome. It seems like your startups, as your books, have been targeting very different domains and very different audiences. What's the philosophy behind you being this fearless? And how do you tackle a new problem space? Well, Oren, you're very complimentary. You're sort of assuming that there's a philosophy behind it. (laughs) 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 And that I'm fearless. That's very uh, complimentary. I'm not sure it's deserved. No, I just I just get bored with things after a while and move on. <laughs> so Freitas has been a um, an exception. It's been eight years, but there's so many different challenges and so many aspects to it. So so it's actually been the longest I've been with um, you know with one startup, and I, I think there's a few years still to go uh, before we achieve our goals. But otherwise, no, there's no philosophy behind it. I just I just sort of <laughs> get uh, you know. Uh, impatient, you know, itching for a change from time to time, and so so I take take on a new challenge, rolling up your sleeves and just going and charging at a new problem, no matter what it is. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> okay, that's what we cut what it is. It's got to be something which I interests me and which but, impressive. But yes, happy to happy to always happy to for a new challenge. That's what we call the serial entrepreneur and not not the breakfast cereal type of entrepreneur like uh, <laughs> exactly, yes. the Airbnb guys like to call themselves the, the breakfast cereal entrepreneurs since they uh, <laughs> right. famously uh, survived on cereal early on. So maybe, you know, thinking about you, you, you referenced that this is uh, your you've, you've got a few more years, at least in the Freitas journey. It sounds like you guys are you know, really, really doing well now. Maybe look in the crystal ball for us and. You know, assume that assume that things continue to go well. What does success look like for you here with Freitas, and how do you know when you've kind of achieved your mission? Yeah, I think we've achieved our mission when you know when when most of the international freight transactions are price quoted online in an automated way, booked online, and and whether invoice actually matches the quote. And it's not just our mission. I mean, it's you know we're partnering with the industry here. You know, we're working. We're not disrupting the industry. We're, we're partnering with the industry. So. It's when us, together with the freight forwarders we work with, and together with the airlines that we work with, and together with the importers and exporters that we work with, when we've all together made the industry, brought the industry to its potential, where, where it's more transparent and more automated, then, then we've, we've succeeded. And, and I don't know how long it will take. A possible indication, it's not the same industry, but, but once airline tickets were sold online in the, around 98, if I remember correctly, it took 10 years till the majority of airline tickets were sold online. So I don't know. This industry has its own uh, differences. On the one hand, the world's more advanced now than it was then. On the other hand, it's a more complex industry, and there's no, there wasn't the the history with Saber behind the scenes. But that might be a time frame. It might take ten years um, to get the majority of the industry online. But once we've got, I, we don't have to have fifty one percent. You know, once we've got a significant percentage and there's momentum towards digitization, and you know, then we'll feel like we've we've done our bit. Okay, Zvi. So uh, two thousand thirty one. 
a decade from now, we're, we're booking you back on Founder Real Talk to talk about uh, that transition. Uh, so hold, hold the date. Okay. <laughs> we want to put you on the hot seat. Uh, it's the time of the episode now where we're going to go into the speed round. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. What advice would you give to a younger's V knowing what you know now? Uh, go for it. Go for it. Enjoy the ride. Uh, there's a lot of luck involved. So just, just go for it. And works doesn't work. Go for it again, you know. What books or articles do you recommend to founders and CEOs? Well, if founders think they're going to have time to read a book, then they're, <laughs> they're in the wrong wrong line of business. Folks who, become, who want to become founders. Even though I, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a hypocrite because I've authored a book and I'm authoring another book, but uh, in my spare time. So I'm a bit of a hypocrite. But, but you know, basically, you should, you should read uh, summaries of books in most cases. You know, there, there's this old classic, um, Crossing the Chasm, which I read many, many years ago. It must be 20 years ago, which is just as relevant today. So um, if you want to read a book, and it wasn't long, you know, so I think that's still very relevant. Absolutely. Sure, tidbit about theoretical physics that will blow our minds, but hopefully not literally. <laughs> not literally. Look, the most intriguing thing in physics, which most uh, people outside of physics haven't heard of, is Bell's theorem. So Bell, a little-known physicist from, uh, I think, Northern Ireland, uh, if I remember correctly, in the 60s or so, 70s maybe? He, uh, Yeah, 60s. He showed, you know, quantum mechanics was already known, but he showed that... You can do an experiment. I won't go into details because it's a quick round, but you can have two particles very far away from each other, and you, you can do an ex you sort of have them together, and then you take them apart, you know, 100 miles apart, and you can do an experiment on both, and actually, based on the results, show there's some correlation, show that they're communicating with each other faster than the speed of light. But it's not literally communicating. You can't send a message because that's impossible according to Einstein. But you can show that they um, that the results of the experiments couldn't possibly have been correlated in that way unless they were still in some way tied to each other. Mm. So it's this real irony where you can't communicate faster than the speed of light, but you get results of experiments which show that there was some entanglement, some connection, which was faster than the speed of light. So it's a very <laughs> subtle and confusing theorem which tells us something very deep about the about the universe. I need to think maybe about that. Bell's theorem. Okay. Well, maybe we'll, we can apply that to Freitas and, and see how agile a network you've created. <laughs> there you are. I thought you were going to dig deep on Higgs boson or something like that. Some of the more uh, recent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the world's most expensive. The world's most How many billions of uh, euros did it take to. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Higgs had figured it out, you know, for, for free uh, decades before, but it took. Billions and billions of euros to actually uh, confirm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Last one in your in your first book, Fizz, you wrote about a girl and her time travel journey. Tell us what time and place you would travel to if you could, and why. <laughs> well, I wouldn't move to anywhere else. I think I think this may be the ideal time in history to live. You know, we've got not maybe 2020, 2021 specifically, but outside, <laughs> outside of COVID, we've got all the benefits of modern medicine and modern technology and modern travel. But, you know, going into the future, there's a lot of uncertainty about AI taking over the jobs, maybe maybe killing us all, who knows. So I think this is a great time to live. But as as you said, I, I am very interested in the in the in the history of physics. So if I really had to travel, I'd, I'd probably, if I, if I could be there in that patent, patent office in Switzerland and see how a young Einstein, you know, in his spare time while he was marking patents could, could sort of reinvent space and time. I mean, that was just such an amazing 
intellectual feat, and uh, and I would love to in any way witness how that how that process went. Well, V, sorry that neither Orin Orin's a little closer to Einstein than I am, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry we, we didn't we didn't match your intellectual force today. But uh, thank you so <laughs> much, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was really fun chatting about Freitas and learning about uh, how you've built the business in uh, in short order to be a real uh, mover and shaker on in, in the global freight space, and how that's not not been easy, but uh, but definitely worth the rewards. Uh, so really appreciate it. I'm sure our audience is going to love love hearing about it, and uh, wishing you the best of luck in the future. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Aaron. It was fun. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social, and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobyte, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat.